What's up, Dune fans? Welcome back to the Do Not Enter podcast, where today Paul chooses between the Princess of the Imperium and the Princess of Spice. I'm your host, Humphrey Shu, and joining me are my friends and co-hosts, Fillmore John. What's up, guys? And Nolan Zhang. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back, everyone. Today we will be covering the first third of the final chapter of Dune. So wow. we've made it this far. It's been a year and a half um probably uh yeah almost a year and a half so uh we've been slowly but surely plotting our way through this book but um we are in the final mm-hmm. stretch so how exciting um yeah i can't so, believe we're finally here uh-huh yeah 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 just a fair word of warning to y'all um i have been a little sick so my voice is a little weird today but um we're, we're making do we're making do yeah so otherwise um how have y'all's weeks been anything to update us on well Um, i just wanted to say happy easter for us at least but when the viewers see it it's not gonna be easter but happy easter to the ones that were here right now uh uh-huh yeah so happy late 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 easter (laughs) Mm -hmm. yep Uh yeah so y'all do anything fun i mean i know i didn't do anything but did y'all go easter egg hunting or something no, uh, I went to College Station with my church because we were doing like a fellowship with our College Station, like church friends. Um, it was interesting because I've never gone to like A&M before, so we drove around A&M for a bit. And I was just like, man, like, like it's cool and all, but like I'm just happy that, you know, I'm going to like Duke, you know. Uh-huh. But at the same time, it's also like, oh, <laughs> for real, <casual laughs> sorry, flex. sorry. <laughs> Flexing on the 90, 95% of rejected applicants. Sorry, yeah. guys. <laughs> but uh, like we also uh, today on our way back, we decided to visit the um, the George Bush library. It was surprisingly open. And I, I came in thinking like, man, like, what did he do for, for a country? You know, like he, he was like that, you know, the, the Iraqi or like the Afghanistan war type of guy. Right. But yeah. like. Look, the library was a lot bigger than you know I thought, and then you know, I didn't realize that he did some better stuff, you know. So <laughs> I was surprised. So it was good yeah. that I got to know our president a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Still oil tycoon, but I didn't realize <laughs> he lived in Odessa, Texas. But you know, like I was like, wow, he lived oh, out he, there, like out yeah. there. Is it Odessa <laughs> famous for oil? I can't remember one way or another. I don't remember. It where. is. It's called like the Permian Basin. That's what. That's what the um. That's what uh-huh. the exhibit was talking about today. Actually, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. I, doesn't he but, own a ranch out there as well? They used to own a house out there, but now I they moved to Houston, I think, right? right. And then now they're like mm. out. Okay. Like, let me yeah. find the actual name. I think it's called it's called the um, Permian Basin. Permian Basin. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It, it sounds like about right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like I, I know where that. Sh- I I feel like I should know where that um is, but then again, my geography is getting worse and worse as I use it less and less. So yeah <laughs> yeah so anyways cool um really fun stuff happy easter to everybody and uh yeah so uh let's kick it off so nolan why don't you take it away with the epigraph okay so this week epigraph reads he was warrior and mystic ogre and saint the fox and innocent chivalrous ruthless less than a god more than a man there's no measuring muad'dib's motives by ordinary standards. In the moment of his triumph, he saw the death prepared for him, yet he accepted a treachery. Can you say he did this out of a sense of justice? Who's justice then? Remember, we speak now of the Muad'Dib who ordered battle drums made from his enemy's skins. 
The Muad'Dib who denied the conventions of his ducal past with a wave of the hand, saying merely, I am the Kwisatz Haderach. That is reason enough. From Arrakis Awakening, Awakening by the Princess Irulan. Mm. Okay. So it was a pretty long epigraph this week, but mm. there was a lot to say, right? Yeah. So firstly, we got like this idea that Paul's gained a bit of a deity status among the Fremen, and his deity status isn't just a singular object. Like he's encapsulating many, many different aspects of both good and bad, like positive and negatives. And there's like there's so much that like he is so beyond like the understanding of the regular people. Like he's like so complex almost that like he like nobody can understand what his motives are. Mm-hmm. Really enough though, like the epigraph kind of foreshadows Paul's maybe potential death. I don't want to say that he's gonna die because I don't think he'll die in the last like 20 pages of this chapter. Mm-hmm. But it is weird because it foreshadows something. And it says in the moment of his triumph, he'll see death like through some type of treachery. And the thing is that like, he still allows it to happen, right? And it's kind of a parallel because like today is Easter and all, and I don't know everyone's a Christian, but like at least from a Christian perspective, we celebrate Easter because Jesus like knowingly died on a cross despite knowing that he's gonna get betrayed by Judas and they're gonna come after him and like they're all gonna die. But like Jesus, like the story of it is that the intent behind like it's a little different from Jesus' story because the intent behind Muad'Dib's sacrifice is more uncertain. They like kind of question whether he died of a sense of justice or if it was like not a sense of justice. I'm not sure what else it would be for. But if he did die out of justice, now who, right? Who exactly did he die for? Mm-hmm. Did he die for the Fremen people or did he die for like the Atreides, right? So all mm-hmm. these different questions kind of like are passed down through this books that are kept by the princess Irulan passed down through ever like through the constraints of time unanswered really just opened up to whoever the readers and the historians are like the, mm-hmm. up to their own interpretation yeah i mean right. it really is like a historical account because in in current history you know there's still so many things that are left unanswered so many motives that are left undiscovered right um we don't know why th- mm-hmm. like like paul would do some some of these things right he but it, especially a lot of this epigraph is foreshadowing his his you know budding ruthlessness almost. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's just there's so many unanswered questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. Um, so yeah, thanks for analyzing the last epigraph of this book. And um, why don't we start with the quote section? So Fillmore, you have the first quote. Okay, so for my quote this week, I chose. When did an Atreides worry first about things when people were at stake? Mm, wow. I mm. mean, really not living up to the Atreides name, I see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So my quote for this week is quite long, but I'm only going to read the first sentence of it. Um, it goes, how would you like to live billions upon billions of lives? So, yeah, I mean, wow. how would you like to live that many That's lives i mean i know too many i can barely live my one life so yeah. so my quote this week is there should be the word tension directly opposite to adapt the demanding memory she thought there should be a word for memories that deny themselves mm-hmm. wow is adab an actual um word in arabic did you oh, look oh. it up or let me see right now right. well adab. we'll we'll find it later when uh it is actually oh it is great so adab is a term used in the modern arab world to signify literature Mm, okay and it evolved from the earliest meaning to become a literary genre 
distinguished by its broad humanitarian concerns. Hmm. Hmm. Literature and memory. I suppose those have some of a connection. Yeah. 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 Sounds like something that Princess Ireland's been doing this whole time. Yeah. Exactly. Writing down <laughs> the words into memory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. All right. Really nice quotes. Um, uh, Fillmore, why don't you take it away with the bulk of the chapter? Okay. So to start off the chapter, we start in the point of view of Paul and he's reclaiming the Arakian governor's mansion. And well, he's essentially taking back what's rightfully his. And so they're doing some investigations in the building to make sure there are no remaining Harkonnen traps or Harkonnen people. And hopefully they do a more thorough job this time so they can avoid another hunter-seeker incident. (laughs) I'm sure they'll do a better job. After all, it's it's the Fremen doing it. And the Fremen's been at war for like many years at this point. So I'm sure they'll do pretty well right but, but actually more like are like familiar with the hunter seekers though yeah and all the That's different te- technology traps but i mean mm-hmm. yeah i mean the the um Raman may have been lax and not fortified as strongly you know compared yeah, to i think he like never the, really uh, expected them to get this far yeah maybe i'm actually more surprised actually by the how relatively untouched the building is like during all the fighting, right? Because we know historically, mm-hmm. at least during many times of war, especially like during World War II in Europe, many of the historical landmarks like disappeared really. After all, like, you know, the old timey stone building over there, while it may seem like a great, like serves a great historical purpose, also does provide pretty good cover from like incoming shells and small arms fires. So stuff gets in the way, you know, you hide behind it and it gets blown up. So the truth is like the current state of the mansion, like how, how like preserved it is really just shows how cleanly the fremen are in like defeating the sardaukar really preventing them from drawing out the battle into a long one by using the environment's cover and like a battle of attrition so like they're preventing destroying like what paul values just by being quick about it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah they're sort of going definitely. all in and just taking over before they have a chance to make a single move honestly it's like mm-hmm. really it's a really smart thing to do because like if you're trying to minimize damage you want to get through everything very quickly and I mean, this is only possible because they've been preparing for this for like the past two years. And, and they now have they the know, shock. Right. They also have, yeah, the shock. And then they also have the storm working in their favor. So all of these different factors just allows them to just go in and yeah. take everything out and take over. Right. Yeah. It's just all working in their favor right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. So even Gurney can't seem to avoid the Fremen influence seeing as, well, he says he prefers the caves over the mansion. And of course, wow. Stilgar approves of this by saying, spoken like a true Fremen. And it, I really <laughs> like this scene because I'm really glad to see the two getting along after the tension we felt a couple of chapters ago. Yeah, so what Paul definitely need, does not need right now is more internal strife between these guys, especially considering his own fragile mental state and how he's struggling against his mother and Shani and all, every, all the other forces. Mm-hmm. However, the thing is, like, I do feel as like this is also a double-edged blade because, especially later on, as Paul struggles to wonder if Gurney can still, like, remain as his impartial confidant, like he just like he trusts Gurney because of how unique and off-world perspective Gurney brings, and like the thing is, like, because as like, as he becomes more and more like Stillguard and the other Fremen, like he just kind of loses that right because he already has Stillguard for the wise counseling for like the Fremen perspective, additionally to his like own mom's perspective of like having all the Reverend Mother's perspective. He does, like I feel like Gurney is supposed to be his like his friend type of mm-hmm. confidence. Oh, so like, you're saying he's sort of Fremen. losing his individuality of being yeah. an outworlder. Kind of. 
Maybe, yeah, and yeah, even basically, and Paul references this later too when he's talking about Stilgar and you know how Stilgar is losing his own, uh, his kind of friendship in in exchange for this worship. And I don't quite remember, but he might have also pointed at Gurney and said the same thing, um, because yeah. because you know this the the reason why these people are valuable is because they have something else to offer Paul that uh, he can't you know conjure up right and um, right. i mean yeah. if if these guys are just blinded and just follow paul as a leader then they're never going to be able to contribute the unique perspectives that make them so valuable and you know paul just hates to see that they're spiraling towards this this re religious fanaticism that all of the other fremen have already fallen for mm -hmm. he describes it like they have that look in their eyes and it's just really sad to see that like former friends of his who he knew for so long just like lose that I guess a sense of closeness and like start seeing him as like some distant, untouchable person. Yeah. yeah they start viewing him as a god instead of their friend, which uh -huh. is yeah. not ideal for his situation. And once again, he's alone. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I mean, Paul makes a good point here with the elimination of Raban taking over this this place, you know, this uh, Iraqi mansion, it's really just a symbol of victory. So Paul says, by occupying this place, I seal my victory for all to understand. So, I mean, he's just showing here, it's just kind of his, you know, point pointing towards the universe saying, you know, now I'm in control here, right? I've reclaimed uh -huh. what is mine. Mm -hmm. Like the entire universe is up in space right now and their guild ships is watching the entire battle going on. And really, by winning today's battle, Paul will show the entire universe that Arrakis is truly his and that the Atreides rightfully own Arrakis, just like what the Emperor told them a long time ago. Uh -huh, but not yeah. only that, though, like, it's not only a message to the rest of the universe, it's also kind of a message to the rest of the Fremen people, because the Fremen needs to feel like they've actually won, you know, they're like, they've fought for so many years and need to feel the final victory, like, final, like, w for like fighting for their planet for so many years after all it's been like what decades almost if not more that they've like in a, been in a long bitter struggle against the harkonnens and only in recent years like the addition of sardaukar like they truly want their own self-autonomy on arrakis and paul really wants them to just have that experience so that's why like like even though they are like being told to search the mansion for like traps and stuff it's also like him telling them to like go enjoy their victory go check it out go like witness it and like have this moment as like a memory to always hold in the future mm -hmm. okay so it sort of solidifies his victory over the imperium yeah basically okay and i think it also shows the rest of the universe that they're a fighting force to be reckoned with because the emperor brought his full force he brought fire started car and he still lost so it's sort of a message yeah. showing we, we were even though he brought his strongest troops we were still able to take take him take him on and take over even though we, they had a massive advantage against us, or they presumed right. to have a massive advantage over us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, five whole legions. I mean, that's nothing to 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 be true. That's not that, that's not yeah. a trivial number. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, it kind of reminds me of like Honda, like how Hannibal really surprised the Romans because, like, even though Hannibal was out resourced, out manned, everything through like his ingenious tactics, great use of like the environment mm -hmm. and the surprise factor, he was able to catch everyone off guard. And this is kind of like what Paul is, you know, like even though he may be outnumbered by the starter car, even though he may be out-resourced and like outgunned, he's able to make the best of it. And through his ingenuity, he's able to take out, take them out and still come out on top. You know, he's able to punch um, like many weight classes above his own. Yeah. Right. Um. Okay, so 
Gurney points out something that Paul says, which seemed pretty minor, but I think it's pretty important. And so I chose it as my quote. So he said, when did an Atreides worry first about things when people were at stake? So he said this in the context of Paul saying the words, nothing money won't repair, I presume. So he said this <laughs> instead of taking into account the lives that were lost. So I, this is a massive change in comparison to Leto because, well, Leto cared more about the lives more than anything else. I mean, a couple, well, near the beginning of the book, he was saving people on his own helicopter. And now he, Paul right. is just saying, oh, we can just cover for that with money. It's like a rich person saying, oh, I'm in a car crash. Just let insurance pay it all. It's, it kind of sounds <laughs> like that. Uh, and basically so, so he's kind of cold-blooded and he's kind of somewhat disregarding those who perished yeah i mean paul is in atreides but we also have to remember that he's a harkonnen and here the harkonnen blood is just really showing um this harkonnen you know regardless of life kind of kind of belief and now he's just so materialistic and it's not the first time that we've noticed this because gurney pointed it out before right when uh when he when paul first met gurney i th i think uh well not the first time he met but after the three years uh and you know gurney pointed it out saying that that paul is just you know he he's changed and paul seems to have even lost a shred of his humanity in this war he's so focused on avoiding this jihad in the future that he doesn't have a sense of what's valuable in the now right he doesn't even look after his men he doesn't look after those irreplaceable things right those non-renewable resources, um, if I can put it that way. And instead, he looks towards the things that can just be repaired with money, right? He's already looking to rebuild and whatnot. And I, I suppose that is a Fremen way, but it's also kind of uh, inhumane. Mm -hmm. I mean, even yeah, in the last chapter, he was like, oh, I care about the men. They're the most valuable resources right now. But now he's just like, oh, <laughs> the money can cover for us. So it's just a huge switch up in his demeanor. Uh-huh. I mean... I think his thought process, like, I'm not trying to defend Paul's like, morality here, but it's, like, it's a little convoluted his thought process because, like, if he, like, he currently, this amount of people died, right? But, like, he's too, he's still worried about the future because when he sees the jihad, he thinks, like, a lot more people would die. So, taking that into account, he's, like, trying to weigh the two worlds and be like, I need to pre present, like, prevent the bigger catastrophe from happening, which is why he might be ignoring the now. And we really get the idea that, like, Paul does know that his current like actions are a bit of a problem because yeah, they aren't like Lido's and it's not the best for the men. Like it does not inspire um trust and leadership really. But the thing is like his response to all this is still like he sighs, he sits down and he needs to rest, right? Like that's what he does. He comes in, he just sits down on the chair and just like takes a moment to himself. And like from Herbert's descriptive writing, we really get like a sense of how tired Paul really is. Because like he's so strained by pushing his omniscience to desperately find a way out of the jihad now that he's so close to victory. But at the same time, he's still so far away from avoiding the, the jihad that he's been so scared of. Like he's exhausted. And sometimes I feel that too, you know, like you're like super tired and like like your friends come to you with their problems. But like, I don't I mean, know, like, like I can't have... handle my own problems. Mm -hmm. oh like and how like, am i supposed I to help you when i can't even solve my yeah like, like yeah exactly like like it's too much for me like i'm like i'm done with myself i can't like i i want to care for you but it's just like i, I can't feel it right yeah, now yeah it's know? quite I hard feel to it do like, uh-huh yeah this is a sad but true reality yeah i mean he's exhausted and you know kind of 
this uncaringness. Um, I forget what's the best synonym for this. Apathy. That's what I, that's what I was looking for. This apathy. apathy this kind of apathy. Ap- apathy. Like this apathy? kind of okay. yeah, apathetic like view towards life, just kind of not caring about anything. Um, and it's mm-hmm. just kind of kind of present throughout a lot of characters in this chapter. You know, Paul, Jessica, even Shawnee to an extent. I feel like right. Um, it's just this. This kind of feeling that, uh, yeah, we won the battle, but the war has just begun, and we've kind of there, there's just so <laughs> much. There's still so much left to fight against, like jihad wise, and also there's just so many personal issues that Paul has to deal with. Yeah, he's like, I've never been this close to victory, but I've also never been this close to the jihad at the same time. Yeah, and so Paul makes Gurney recite the quotation for this event, and this event being the death of his son, um, which is actually a Bible verse. Um, I had to Google to find out because I was like, yeah, this kind of reads like a Bible verse, but I wasn't sure because, you know, I've never read the Bible. But um, I will read it here, though, and then Nolan, of course, as our resident uh, biblical expert, will analyze it. So the quote goes, And the victory that day was turned into mourning unto all the people. For the people heard say that day how the king was grieved for his son. Oh, okay. I think I recognize where this is from. So uh, It's from 2 sure Samuel. From. Yeah. Uh, okay, 2 Samuel. Yeah. Um, is this... Do you know the verses? Which, which oh, exact shoot. I, I'll, I'll look it up. Um, like... Okay. Because, like, my initial thought was about the Pharaoh and, like, grieving for the firstborn song. Uh-huh. And, like, because that one was, like, a pretty iconic verse as well, where, like, after, like, the after the Passover, which is really ironic because, like, the Passover happened on Thursday uh-huh. or Wednesday, Wednesday evening and, like, into Thursday. Uh-huh. And, like, the, the Jewish people and then the ghost came and they killed all the Oldest firstborn, and then the Pharaoh cried. Uh, That's like my first thought. But like, if it's uh, from Second Samuel, that means it's probably with one of the Israelite kings. Um, it, like, was, it was Second Samuel nineteen, and then one nineteen one. Nineteen one. Let um, me see. Yeah. Well, some uh, spontaneous research here. Israelite oh, king. Absalom. Oh, okay, yeah. another one. So, Absalom. I'm not quite as familiar with the story, but it was David's son, and. I heard he was a bad person, so I'm um, <laughs> you know. Like, Wait, who is David? I don't know what to say, bro. <laughs> um, I heard Absalom was like a party boy. <laughs> so, wow, okay. okay. Well, yeah, well. Um, I mean, for those yeah. who read the Bible, fact check me on this later, but I don't really remember great things about Absalom, you know, so. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, you know, our, like, yeah, he, even... he wasn't like a great son, you know, like you, you cry for your son if he dies, you know, so understandable david uh-huh. it's okay uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> sorry about that but yeah <laughs> well honestly um when you mentioned that like it kind of almost made me forget about the fact that his son died like a couple of chapters ago i mean like i understand like it's there there's only a couple of chapters ago but it's been like a whole week or so mm-hmm. but like i could hardly tell that his son's death has been weighing so heavily on Paul's mind in this chapter because the entire first part of the chapter has really just been his dialogue with a lot of imperative language of him like commanding people around, right? He's mm-hmm. ordering stuff to be done inside the Arachian building. And every single time that we've gotten like a glimpse into his own inner thoughts and emotions, we've just felt like this heavy, suffocating tiredness enough to make us all sigh, which is kind of contagious. But like, that's all I've gotten. Like I forgot the fact that son died and now we're really beginning to see the effects of this death here. Yeah. I, honestly, I thought he forgot about his son, at least for a little while, but 
he was really just holding back all his emotions. Well, I guess like a true Bene Gesserit. Mm -hmm. so yeah. And he uh, sort of had this dark cloud just hanging around his head, looking for any openings in his like, I guess in his mind. But <laughs> I guess our boy has gotten so much stronger, not just physically, but mentally. So I'm kind of proud of how far he's come and how he's been able to hold back. But mm -hmm. at the same time, like this really can't be good for his mental. Yeah. And Probably also, not, but... and also he's <laughs> like done this before too, with his, with the death of his father, he was just kind of sitting there until he right. erupted. And I feel mm -hmm. like sometime or another, you know, he's going to erupt. He knows he can't do it here, but he's just kind of, you know, it's just this slowly breaking dam. Um, you know, it's a ticking time bomb. Yeah, basically. And he's he's going to blow uh, sometime or another. He needs right? an outlet. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's just the, the fact that his son died and he doesn't even have time to process it is just, you know, it's a little bit scary to think of how, how, how much that would destroy him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't have a son, but I can just hurt. imagine like mm -hmm. the pain. Yeah. I mean, we're not parents, but you know, but eventually if we choose to become parents, you know, if your if your children die, then that's you know, that's an extension of you, right? So Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um kind of switching off that really dark topic into something a little more interesting. Um, this is how Aaliyah communicates with her brother. So this is how she does it. She places herself into the future so that Paul, when accessing his visions, can see her. So it's kind of not a direct, like, you know, so Aaliyah wasn't lying when, it, when you know, she said it wasn't telepathy, but it's as close, it's like a one-way telepathy, you know. Aaliyah yeah. can just plant herself in the future and then Paul will just be able to see that and interpret it. And um, I think it's just crazy, crazy to think about. And even crazier to think that she claims Paul can't even do this. Like, I didn't I <laughs> think there was something that our boy, the Kusatara, couldn't do. I thought everything was <laughs> yeah. in his power, especially anything Ben and Jester related. I thought he had, mm -hmm. you know, the Reverend Mother's powers and more, right? And considering how Aaliyah is a Reverend Mother herself. Um, so so basically this uh, future seeing power, if you can even call it future seeing, uh, this is how Paul knows that Stilgar has found the Baron's body before Stilgar says anything. So Stilgar must have thought Paul has psychic powers or something, right? Which kind of leads to his his re reduction of, of a person. Right. I think like this is actually pretty insane. Just like it's really hard to make, at least for me, to make an understanding of it. So the currently how I'm thinking about it is like, Aaliyah is kind of like making footnotes along the vision line of the future. So it's just like Aaliyah's going ahead in the book and like she's like dropping all these footnotes and like doggy doggy earring like some of these pages. So every single time like Paul's looking forward, he runs across a little comment left behind by Aaliyah. So he's like, oh my, like that's a message, you know? And it's just like these, I'm sure like these footnotes or whatever left by Aaliyah are like inconsequential because otherwise Aaliyah will have like control over the future and that was probably isn't what's happening. So Aaliyah's probably just like, the overlay vision i don't really understand but she's like able to go in and like leave stuff in the future she's acting paul. as like some sort of phantom leaving a note yeah yeah she's like pointing paul along the right path i guess uh, okay. yeah so, like, i'm kind of like it's kind of it's like an interesting way of thinking about it because if paul can't do it and Leah can't that means like Aaliyah's kind of like a secret like like she's like she's an extension of paul now like, uh -huh. in, in a way okay. she's able to do something that he can't i'm just curious to see how herbert really develops on this idea because like this mm -hmm. is powerful and like i know we have like only 20 something pages left so like there's probably no space in this book but like in future books i want to see how it shapes the decision making of paul yeah. it's like imagine like a combination of like the siblings it's like the power is like the uh -huh. key to make, like, fully charting maybe the future 
like the mind-boggling vast confusing labyrinth called the future that like other people and even paul right now can't make a sense of but valia can like guide paul in the future that's insane oh yeah if they can yeah. work together i mean there's there's no stopping them you know there's there's uh-huh. just so much power concentrated there, especially if Aaliyah has developed powers that even, you know, this famous, you know, legendary Kwasat Hadarak doesn't even have. Uh, there's yeah. there's just no telling how, how far their power can extend. Mm-hmm. I mean, both Aaliyah and Paul together may just be strong enough to take on the uncertain future. But this kind of brings up the question, what is Aaliyah's true potential? Because, I mean, she yeah. clearly has more room to grow and... I mean, just uh-huh. like Paul, she wasn't born normally, and she may be the first of her kind. So, I mean, if she has some more tricks up her sleeve that even Paul can't match, I mean, things are going to get interesting very quickly, especially in the future <laughs> when, I mean... Yeah. Oh, no. Funny. <laughs> the trees versus not, the Harkonnens, but, yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, if they work together, like, they're practically unstoppable. I mean, they have the future under their belt, like, what yeah. more can you ask for? Yeah, so I'm curious yeah. to see how how these this dynamic duo will you know really rattle the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So Stilgar has found a Sarikar who's dazed and in shock and extremely submissive. So, um, but Paul is still very wary of this Sarikar. Um, as he said before, uh, you can never expect too much from a Sarikar because they'll have another trick up their sleeves. They're gonna have something hidden in their hair or something you you just won't see or something hidden under their armpit you just like never know what's going to happen but i feel you know something that the the um herbert really mentioned here was that the starter car were always expecting to win and so the fact that they lost is just like a shock to them in and of itself so i mean i can definitely relate to that so uh i mean it, it kind of does eliminate um any kind of sort of set like feeling of pride that the starter car might have because they just got totally stomped by the fremen right they're probably just like super embarrassed right now like honestly i i still think they might try to pull a couple of things here or there because they're still decently powerful like i'm sure like like you said they've still got stuff all over their body however i feel like like you said like their pride is shattered like there's no there's no recovery now like, they, they lost like mm-hmm. they can't report back to the emperor the emperor has to submit to paul and they know that like like they're done for i don't want to say like Emperor is going to do a lot right now, and they know that their like leader like can't redeem them anymore. So uh-huh. it's a big embarrassing moment for them. Oh, but yeah. really, I'm just like more, I'm like more surprised at how Paul really associates the Sardaukar's looks with the rank of them, right? Because even among Sardaukar, I'm guessing there's probably favoritism based on appearances, because this is how life is. I'm guessing I don't know, but strangely enough. The way that it was portrayed in the book kind of like disturbed me a little because it kind of falls into an almost neo-Nazi description of racial supremacy. It was just like, you know, that guy had blonde and chiseled features, meaning uh-huh. that he must be a superior. Like I was just like, what is going oh, on? Yeah, like, it is kind of like the the Aryan view. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was uh-huh. like, what? I was like, Herbert, like, are you influenced or something? But well, this was a 1960s thing, right? 1950s, 1960s. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess. Mean, I wonder. I wonder if Herbert was trying to make some some kind of comparison there. Right, what um, was he trying to imply exactly? Yeah, like, like some blonde chisel people always yeah, some, power. Some form of you know, some form of suggestive. Yeah. Artificial right. selection going on in the Sardaukar. I mean, I wouldn't put it past the Emperor, but that is he trying to gross? I wouldn't I mean, mind. Yeah, I don't know. Is, is he trying to, you know, um I don't know, trying to draw some weird comparisons between the Emperor and someone else, you know. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, From, don't yeah. don't know. Yeah, but the emperor definitely does seem like a, a quite a messed up person. So. Yeah. I mean, from what I can deduce, this favoritism is only within the ranks of the Sardaukar and, well, not within the Imperium because, well, I guess the blonde chisel look wouldn't be the ideal then, and instead the Emperor's red hair and Leto's looks would be the ideal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, just looking like the Emperor would probably be the ideal, not like a blonde chisel guy. Well, I mean, I know Hitler didn't fit his own Aryan yeah, description. He didn't fit his own ideal. Yeah. Well, I so, guess that's also true. Yeah, so it was, I mean, that's also kind of the one of the weirder things in history, you know, but... Wait, so oh. did he view himself as inferior? That's well, so he, he clearly didn't, but... Also, clearly not. But, yeah, clearly not. He's an embodiment of hip, hip, hypocrisy. Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, I cannot understand them, guys. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, away from Nazi discussion, but... Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just really weird going on that appearance is an indication of rank, right? Because I don't think that's ever really held true, like ever in, in history. Um, yeah. appearance being an indication yeah. of rank. Wait, yeah. wasn't Nefud also blonde? Was he? He might have been. Uh, maybe. I feel like, there was I feel a like I'm envisioning him as like dirty blonde or something. I don't know. Yeah, why. like sand colored hair. Yeah, maybe. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. <laughs> Maybe the like, emperor just likes blonde stuff. I don't know. <laughs> well, that's its own Maybe. personal preference. Anyways. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so for the emperor's taste. Yep. Um, so Paul has asked this Sardaukar specifically, uh, this blonde Sardaukar, to take a message to the emperor. And this message reads, I, the duke of a great house, an imperial kinsman, give my word of bond under the convention. If the emperor and his people lay down their arms and come to me here, I will guard their lives with my own. And then he proceeds to swear upon it with his ducal signet ring. So he's essentially forcing the emperor to surrender here. So Paul must truly believe that they've completely overwhelmed and crushed the Sardaukar because we don't even get much of a battle scene, right? It's just kind of this explosion, this commotion, a flurry of movement, and suddenly, you know, the chapter changes, the point of view changes, and Paul's won. So I wonder, you know, what the Spacing Guild is thinking about all this. Are they, I don't know, they they find out Arrakis is totally lost and what are they doing? Just taking commissions from like sports betting up there? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so they're just, they're just, you know, playing, you know, they're just booking, uh, what's it called? High odds for the Fremen now. It just all flipped. Yeah. They're the third party transaction party. Uh-huh. Yeah, they're just taking, taking 1% off the top of all the bets. People sports betting from outer space. I don't know. They start preying on microtransactions. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> feeling the <laughs> feeling the great houses gotcha addictions. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. Yeah, but like back to the back to the book, but I don't quite remember exactly as clear, like because I read this a long time ago, like when I finished a book, I finished over Thanksgiving break. But I felt like there's maybe more fight scenes or something. I feel like I don't know. Like I feel like it's too easy. If Paul truly did just like win, then like, like it's a bit of a letdown. The climax, you know. I think Herbert knows this, so maybe there's probably going to be more drama within the last twenty pages. Like, oh, I fully book. expect. Yeah, like I definitely expect some type of like way of to spice things up. Whether there's like blustering dialogue, whether it's like fer- ferocious like geopolitical arguments, it's got to be some type of action going on. Like something's gonna like we're gonna take a plot twist somewhere around here. Yeah, I mean, if there's not a last second plot twist, because, or if there isn't a last second plot twist, I'll be so angry. Because, well, right now, the conclusion of the story has had a lot less action than I was hoping for. So, mm-hmm. Herbert uh-huh. really needs to spice things up to make the ending like 
a lot more memorable. Mm, yeah, uh-huh. definitely. Uh-huh. Although it is just a continuation uh, in a larger work. So, you know, I'm not sure what to expect, but I know it'll be something good. That's for sure. I definitely mm-hmm. hope so. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, the emperor did say to the Reverend Mother, oh, I need to come up with, we need to come up with the oh, plan. So, oh, yeah. yeah. That's kind of a foreshadowing. So yeah. I want to see what that plan is. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Let's see what this this emperor guy can come up with because everything he's come up with so far clearly has not worked. Right. Maybe <laughs> the plan has to do with pain. the treachery thing in the epigram. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. We must see. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Well, now we see that Johnny and Paul's mom has finally arrived into the Eric King quarters. So Stilgar makes a, kind of a remark about not really understanding why when Jessica walked in, she was kind of entranced by the weirding room and she's like asked for time off there. But like when Paul explained that his mom's homesick and you know, like she's remembering Caladan where there's a lot of water, you know, lots of trees, lots of plants, like so little space to walk through, you know, there's just so many plants around. Stilgar's reaction is just like, whoa, like like he's shocked and like he's kind of rev- like he's like. I don't know, awestruck by this wonderful vision of this, right? Like, his reaction is something that Paul greatly fears among the people because it just shows how precariously close he is to the Jahal. Like, we don't want that. So, Stilgar used to, in my opinion, was more of like Lee at Kynes back then. He's more of like, he knew the prophecies, he knew the legends, but he was always still super critical of Paul being the Lisa Algea. But now he's just like, he's changed, you know? He's whispering underneath his breath water from the sky like mm-hmm. i understand he's excited but like he's changed you know like a little too much he's kind of starting to represent like the other friend there who were like labeled as like i don't know those crazy fanatics early on in the book by themselves but now like he kind of resembles what they whisper like you see he knew no one told him but he knew like he's sounding like them now and just like this shift is like he truly converted, like Paul truly converted his former enemy to a devout follower. And like, I can't tell if that's a good or a bad thing because Paul doesn't like it, but like Stilgar's like mm-hmm. in a good place, I guess. He well, likes I mean, it. I guess they was never really his enemy. They were just sort of on not the best terms. Yeah, I yeah, guess. The best terms. Yeah, they just weren't acquainted with each other yet, you know. And mm-hmm. now and now that they've gotten to know each other, you know. Yeah, they're, they're sort of like family at this point. Yeah. Yeah, they're like family. So it was like today, like we were talking about this in Sunday school. Like I was asked by like my teacher, like how much evidence would it take for me to believe that my brother was like the Messiah? And I was just like, nothing's ever going to convince me that my brother's the Messiah. Like that's Cap. <laughs> like he's not Jesus. Like he's not my savior. <laughs> but like, like this is probably like, this is how like, this is how this thing is going on. Like Stilgar's ate beside him. He showered beside him. He's fought beside Paul. He's like Paul's brother. And now he's just like believed that Paul's like the Messiah, like the savior for the Fremen, you know, like he sees Paul as a supreme being far beyond his own capabilities. This conversion is just like he took the most intimate person in his life and convinced them that he was better than them, like different from them, and, like their ruler. That's crazy to me. Like, I don't know. Like he's yeah. really moved. Mm-hmm. I mean, even though they did all these different things together. They showered, they ate, and fought. Well, I mean, I'm not sure about the showering part, but yeah. I mean, <laughs> but um, he managed to convince someone who is so close to him that he is something special instead of like someone he knows in everyday life. He's no longer part of his norm. He's part of like, uh, well, 
a cult, mm. I guess. Yeah, and yeah. I feel that that's also partly Paul's fault because he's always seemed like really aloof to me, kind of this person that, like, though he's not always trying to put others down, he kind of just kind of distances himself, right? I don't know if y'all get that get that feeling too, but I feel that Paul just, you know, that the way that he acts around the Fremen and even around those he's close with, uh, just I mean, just don't. I mean, it's too mecha- mechanical. I feel like it just makes it feel that like he's a machine that's just better. I mean, he was born to take command, so I can see uh-huh. why he acts that way. But right. it's just unnatural. Like unlike Leto, he has he's missing some sort of humanistic element to it. Yeah, and I, I mean, it's just yeah, it's just his human qualities have just kind of declined over time. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I want to yeah. also want to talk about Jessica's like um, well, I guess homesickness. So do you guys think that they'll ever revisit Kaladin? Because, I mean, although they're dependent on the spice now, I guess they could take a couple bags of spice with them and maybe visit the planet for a month or two. I guess, I mean, that would be the plan. They they gotta get the guild to cooperate, you know. Right. And also, Kaladin probably belongs to another greenhouse now. And the Atreides are just... The Atreides have so many targets on their backs. You know, it's, like, easy for others to, like, set an ambush for them or something, so... Oh. I don't know. I feel that leaving a it, it's kind of weird to say, but Arrakis has turned from the most dangerous place to the safest place for them, honestly. In my <laughs> okay. Yeah. So Arrakis is now truly their home. Yeah, so unless they could really, you know, unless Paul really takes over the the Imperium and everything, right? Yeah. He's, unless he's he totally just, becomes the next emperor. Yeah, yeah, he's it's it's not gonna be safe. Oh, so he kind of needs to force them to recognize them. Again. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, there's also a big reveal in this chapter that Raban is also dead. Well, I mean, I guess it's not that big of a reveal because, well, he died <laughs> in the background without a special scene for him yeah. or anything. So, yeah. well, I mean, at least the Baron had a somewhat proper death scene, but Robin doesn't even get a cause of his death. He's just like, oh, Robin's dead. Uh huh. Yeah, so I'm pretty disappointed in how some of the main antagonists are just dying. Yeah, dude just got casted, cast to the end credits. Like he died off camera. Yeah, he, just, <laughs> he died off. And narrator, and he was gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, again, Herbert's just casting these guys aside like they're nothing. You know, they're worthless. And I mean, yeah, Ravon wasn't terribly useful to the plot, but also he was a pretty big villain. Um, I feel like, and and it seems that. You know, Herbert didn't even consider him important enough to merit a cause of death. So we just don't know. So somehow he just space. he just died in the commotion. You know, and body was never recovered. <laughs> yeah, he just got killed killed in action. I guess I don't yeah, know. I don't mean, know. What he could happened. have at least said, "Oh, he was killed by some of the grabbing sink and pan fremen who were angry at him." So they got their proper. Or like event. maybe you know, it's like, "Oh, we found his body in a ditch," you know, or something. At least right. give oh, him, no, give us like, something. Right, like a baby was thrown in with him or something. Oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> uh, we have fremen, fremen, classic fremen type. You know, the, the, the them babies are the scariest fremen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I mean, yeah, that, that's quite disappointing, though. Um, so I mean, it would be even more disappointing if if some of the you know, other villains like Fade just died the same way. Yeah. yeah. I think Fade might be different though, because Fade actually had a plan and like he actually got like pretty large, uh, I don't know, book time, yeah. I guess. Yeah. So yeah, I feel like, like Fade would get more respectable death. Than I mean, he more. got a solid 30, 40, 50 pages, 50 pages maybe. Yeah. The yeah. arena yeah. fight. Yeah. And also well, I mean, the, so the, the very beginning. The, 
But yeah, true. The Baron got a lot of pages, <laughs> and the Baron just got just got stabbed by the Gomdon Bar. I mean, yeah, poetic <laughs> justice, but also, you know, we we could have got something better than that. At least, you know, make Paul like duel him or something, like make him like <laughs> like trip him by like disabling his his suspensors, and he just like you know, <laughs> oh yeah, he or just make can't him roll him around on the ground while he can't do anything because <laughs> yeah. he's too fat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's yeah. Wow. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> Anyways, but yeah, so like finally, you know, who does get book time is Jessica. So Jessica finally opens the doors to the room and walks in. And it's kind of weird because she doesn't seem as emotionally shaken as Stilgar kind of described her. He was just like, I don't know what's taking her so long. She's like asking to take time off, you know, in the rooms. But really, Jessica kind of seems different when she walks in. Like she walks in with what Paul described as assertiveness with no emotion. So she comes over and looks at her son. Like she knows her son. Like he's been run ragged. Like she could tell that he's tired because she's been a gesture, even though Paul's trying to hide it. Um, she peers down, but she has zero compassion regarding his emotions. She's like disregarding his emotions and just like disregarding the fact that he's super exhausted from the battle and from the loss of his son. It's kind of like a little scary almost. Like Paul's going through a lot, and his son just died. He just won like a massive victory. He's also just like Jessica is hit by homesickness of Kaladin. And yet Jessica is still so stone-faced, apathetic towards Paul, you know? Like she's like, get up, you know, like, where's Aaliyah? <laughs> it's like I just had a thought, like maybe, maybe it's not like for him per se, but maybe it's like a way of her coping with this. Like this facade is not for Paul to feel bad. It's not for it's not it's not her intention to embarrass or like like demean Paul. It's rather for her to continue maintaining composure so that she can make it through this entire ordeal. Mm-hmm. I think so as well, but um, I think it's also a bit for Paul because, well, she needs to be cold to him so he will see it through to the end. So if yeah. she lets her emotions get in the way, it'll also affect Paul's emotional state and it might be a hindrance in how everything gets resolved. So, Because everything, it, it all depends on Paul right now to keep the jihad from happening. And well, if Jessica messes anything up, the blame will—it'll all be on her. Right. Yeah, and also she's in a place that doesn't hold very good memories. You have to remember we're—we're we're in the mansion right now, and the mansion—a lot of bad things Betrayal. happened. The UA, but yeah, UA betrayed him. Leto died. The mm-hmm. Hunter Seeker incident. So I mean, yeah. all these bad events—they're definitely affecting her psyche as well. Yeah, it's kind of PTSD, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I think that. Jessica really is in shock. Um, it's not it's not faked. I don't think. I don't think she's just faked or just just she's so inhumane now that she just can't feel right. I mean, I don't think she's doing this on purpose because she said she. It, I mean, the book says she was quote unquote rendered incapable, not you know incapable, but rendered incapable. So some external uh, force was was the cause of this. And but I mean, but it's still really scary. Everyone just seems so emotionless, and it's just scary to see how these these Ben and Jessica seem to just be cold and withdrawn. There's no fiery emotion there's no you know outbreak of tears of screaming crying as yeah. you, you'd expect from from our species right i mean you just you just kind of get this kind of cold distance you know brooding feeling from and it's just it's just so i mean in the process these these men just are in the process of controlling their emotions and so much and they pride themselves so much on being human they they really aren't human you know they they don't kind of they don't <laughs> represent what 
us humans should be i feel like um they don't i mean i mean of course there's a lot of varying degrees of human but you know a human emotion is to feel grief and these guys just can't feel it they they suppress it so well i mean none of us can mm -hmm. but that's what makes them so good at politics and that's what's gonna make them so good at negotiating because the emperor's about to come out and maybe just because doing this uh, she could get paul up and ready for this emperor's entrance because she needs him to be able to like you said like see things through to the very end she needs to get his act together because the truth is yeah his son died yeah he just won a victory but you know like the, the negotiation is the most important part in order to make sure that everything goes well and that the results yeah. are what matters yeah but like one way or another i'd still expect more emotion you know and just like more mm -hmm. you know there's so there's just too much restraint so much that it's just alien Mm -hmm. yeah, I think she's is. sort of really relying on the philosophy all's uh -huh. well ends well. So <laughs> everything needs to end well for everything to be well. Yeah. Even though I guess yeah. it, it will never be like that because well, Leto the second the process dies, matters. But, mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Okay. So um can we talk for a moment about how much of a beast Aaliyah is? Oh, for real. He, I was hoping because even though this, she yeah. was in such a precarious situation, she's already out there in the battlefield killing enemy wounded and marking oh, yeah. their bodies for water recovery teams like she's out there <laughs> doing so much because i mean when i was four i was watching sesame street and, i mean i understand that she has the experience of many reverend mothers but i mean paul even says that any good fremen child does what Aliyah is currently doing so okay. any good I mean, fremen child of course yeah. Yeah. i mean of course you know it's it's nothing special again yeah like, again <laughs> just, what for, these just people, everyday activity what these people take for granted is just something that we would never understand and these fremen children are definitely trained way differently than anything we could imagine i mean it seems that battle tactics are drilled into them from the womb right they're just you know right when they're they're a fetus their their mother's reciting like the art of war to them or something i don't know but <laughs> it's just they come out and they can already recite the holy scripture the art of war right? their but, image training in their with their small underdeveloped brains so when they come out they can fight yeah. with like all different types of martial arts yeah it's just they're already you know normal mother's like oh you know he kicked in my stomach but it's just like oh he did like two uppercuts and a jab kind of <laughs> yeah <laughs> i really felt that one yeah i really felt that one yeah keep at it little one he's <laughs> roundhouse kicking my stomach every day now <laughs> yeah they come out ready to fight <laughs> i don't know it's, mm -hmm. but um yeah i mean the, the again you know this futuristic it's i feel like herbert's really developed this book more as like a futuristic evolution of humanity rather than the evolution of technology right yeah that really is how i feel as well but jokes aside i feel like um this is to my quote of the week which is there should be a word tension directly opposite to adapt to demanding memory she thought there should be a word for memories that deny themselves so i know we've been like this entire like past you know a couple of minutes we've been clowning on jessica and you know all these ben and jessers for being really like inhuman almost like mm -hmm. alien and how they're treating each other mm -hmm. but at the same time from this little thought process that we see into own jessica's own head we see that she is also herself experiencing like a moment of fear right she's like they all say like fear is the mind killer we all know that it's like the running like motto of doom but jessica in spite of all her training all her years is trying to run from her memories she's exactly in the place that she fears most she's being bombarded with all these different thoughts of Lido, the betrayal, everything, right? It's all there. Every single time she walks down the rooms, that's all she sees. And there's so much going on. And she she knows she can't run from them. They're catching up to her really quickly. But the thing is, like, I still love how she's, like, trying to cope with it. Like, her description of the 
war tension. It's just really beautiful to me as we see how she like tries to conceptualize the push and pull of her memories trying to barge into her very thoughts. But at the same time, she's like trying really hard to block them all out. Like I think that's crazy just the way that she's thinking right now. Like mm-hmm. how Herbert's able to describe her thought process to us. It's kind of like our anxiety coming towards us. Like we know that we like Monday test, you know, like we hate those. Like, <laughs> like as we're podcasting, you know, like I know that I might have a Monday test, but like I'm trying to keep that out of my head as I'm podcasting. So I'm trying to be present here for y'all. I'm trying to be mm. like here in the moment, enjoying every single moment instead of worrying about something in the future, instead of worrying about something that might not matter to this to the singular point in time right now. Mm-hmm. That's how Hakuna I feel like Jessica Matata is going. Yeah. Yeah, Hakuna Matata, basically. <laughs> yeah. I really like the, I mean, even though we say it a lot, fear is the mind killer. But we also have to kind of, if you reverse it, it also makes sense. The mind is the fear killer. Uh-huh. Oh, really, that's actually able so to clever. Control, yeah, if you're yeah. able to control your emotions through your mind, then fear becomes a second thought. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I, I think like on Discord, Humphrey left his uh, little bio as fear is the mind killer. So I thought that was pretty cool. Oh. So <laughs> I was thinking, oh, the mind is the fear killer. So I, I don't know if you saw that, but I left that as my memo. Hey! Oh, I kind of wanted to bring that up. Oh, I did. I did not see that. Wow, that's actually so. That's so clever. (laughs) Wow, (laughs) I don't know if anyone's come up with that before, but no matter what, that's really clever. (laughs) I'm gonna, I'm gonna make that my simple, but yeah, I'm gonna make that my, I'm gonna make that my status for a while. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's actually so cool. (laughs) Um, yeah. Um, so I mean, that's just this this whole thing just jessica needing to to kind of stay in the moment for paul and just for everyone else around her um even though it might not be totally voluntary right i mean there's just so many external factors that that play into this and um and kind of this also leads into my quote for the week so back-to-back quotes um and this quote is really long but i just loved paul's outburst here um and so it goes how would you like to live billions upon billions of lives paul asked there's a fabric of legends for you. Think of all those experiences, the wisdom they'd bring. But wisdom tempers love, doesn't it? And it puts a new shape on hate. How can you tell what's ruthless until you've plumbed the death of depths of both cruelty and kindness? You should fear me, mother. I am the Kwisatz Haderach. So, I mean, wow. I just think that this was such a cool way for Paul to tell his mother off because it's just him referencing that he's having really these experiences that no one else, including his mother has had, you know, you should fear me mm-hmm. because I am greater. Like it's like, I am ascendant kind of, kind of thing. Right. <laughs> I mean, because he, it, I mean, it's almost like a rebellious teenager saying, you have no idea how I'm feeling, you know? Uh, but in it this really case, is. Paul is totally justified. Um, nobody has any idea what he's feeling, except for maybe Aaliyah, um, questionable. Um, but question mark. yeah, question mark. But it's especially crazy because the Reverend Mothers can only see into other Reverend Mother experiences. And these experiences are all from perspectives of power. But Paul can see both the highs and lows of the human population. He can see, you know, the the poor, you know, struggling to make a life for themselves. But they, he can also see, you know, these uh, Fremen who may not have much but are, you know, really dedicated. And he can also see the rich, you know, the the Harkonnens and the Atreides of of the past. And and just when you have that kind of an all encompassing perspective, it makes a lot of sense that he has a tempered view on the necessities of war, right? I mean, he's yeah. delved into both ends of the spectrum here he's really found the balance between everything and i mean there's just nothing that he hasn't seen before and i mean everything should just click for him 
Mm-hmm. I'm surprised he doesn't like want to so just burn much. everything down and just rebuild it from scratch, considering uh-huh. he's seen everything <laughs> and he knows all the horrible things. And I mean, considering it's Paul, he probably can build a better society, but I think he knows that he's not arrogant enough to try that. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, that jihad might be his his way of building the better society, you know? Right. It reminds might... me of the concluded that like the humans need to die for uh, the better of earth oh yeah i mean <laughs> word for that a misanthrope someone who hates like all humans oh maybe um i'll, I'll google that word real quick i don't yeah. specialize in humans yeah. who hate me guys not discrimination oh yeah yeah you're everyone. right yeah a person who dislikes humankind and avoids human society yeah so yeah I mean, right. I mean, this the jihad might be a way for him to impose his idea on the universe. But again, you know, that's that's this not his goal. Reverse yeah. psychology. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but back to what's going on, and we hear, we see here that the emperor is about to come out, and oh ho ho, Paul's also is like, my future bride's about to come out as well. Ooh, I was like, you know, what? start playing canon and D because they're about to get married. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, anyways, I'll just spare you from the bad singing. Yep. <laughs> Sorry, everybody but just yeah, clicked like... off the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope y'all are still here. If y'all are still here, I applaud you for your bravery. Yeah, I'm sorry for the ear destruction. Yep, sorry for the ear rape. But yeah, the emperor's own daughter, so he's after her. You know, he's coming for Princess Irulan, and it's his bid to the throne. And to Paul, he claims that she's just a key, but at the same time, Jessica's like, hold up there, Paul, you're going a little too fast. Like, she projects upon him to not make the same mistake that, you know, your father Lido made with me, I guess. And he's like, but 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 she's the princess, you know. He's like she's different, <laughs> mom. <laughs> like you know, they also oh, like she's yeah. different. <laughs> she's I love mom. I love the way you said that. It's just so I don't know. It just reminds me of some eleven year old or something. You know, who has no dating streets. Like she's different, mom. <laughs> she's the one, mom. <laughs> yeah, what would say, you I know? About it was that? like eleven year old trying to bargain with his mom to get him some candy. Like, oh, this candy's different. It's actually healthy. It's got natural ingredients in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not that crazy stuff you see the kids passing around at school. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. But yeah, like this moment just really reminded me of like when I watched Assassination Classroom recently, and then there was this quote that really stood out to me, where it's like there are two reasons why people become teachers to show off their success and to show off their failures. Wow. I feel like Jessica's right now, like she's here trying to teach Paul because she's trying to make him avoid her failures, but also to point him towards her definition of success. Right. Mm-hmm. So Jessica, like, you know, like what she like, Paul just like totally dismantled her point right now. Cause like, he's different. Like, you're, like you're, she was a princess. So now like, Jessica's trying every different tactic that she has up her sleeve, and she's like dragging Paul's consideration of like the grieving Chani into account. You know, she's like, "But what about Chani? Like, don't bring the innocence into this." And it's just like, I'm not sure if that's the right move, and like, I'm not sure if we should be involving Chani or if Paul should be going after a new wife, especially now that Chani's grieving. You know, like she's in mm-hmm. a fragile state; she's crying over the loss of Lido the second. Paul needs to slow down. You know, not think about the future wife. You know, I know he wants to be the emperor one day, but you can take you know, a couple of months off, you know, and then yeah, declare his love for Princess Irland. Yeah, uh-huh. like, guys, chill out. You know, there's an engagement period for a reason. Yeah, not even right. a honeymoon. Didn't even take her out to dinner. Uh-huh. He's just like, you're my wife now. Yeah. No question <laughs> it. about it. No questions asked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, he's trying to get his hands on Irland. He's such a womanizer. Just like, 
a certain know. somebody I know. What? <laughs> and he happens to be co-hosting with me in this podcast. <laughs> hey, well, hey, not that, whoa, not that far, whoa. but, but uh, uh, no, no one feel... does have the pull. Yeah, what? <laughs> he's got that unspoken raise. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, so well, I feel like his Harkonnen side is kind of awakening and causing him to be extremely selfish right now. So mm-hmm. I'm, I think that's probably one of the reasons why he's just talking about, oh, I need Irland in my life so I can quickly become the emperor. But I think he sort of needs a wake-up call of some sort, like what Jessica experienced, because, I mean, she experienced that wake-up call, and she's like, oh, I was pushing Paul towards the jihad. I was wrong. And then she's just like, Paul, do whatever you want now. But I, I you, think, Paul. right, and now Paul, I think Chani is going to be that wake-up call for him because, I mean, if she can't get his head straight, it's just going to be getting worse from here and it might go towards the jihad who knows mm-hmm. i mean I feel like all paths lead to the jihad at this point yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i think chani is really like his last, his last chance hope. at humanity yeah. yeah because when she did enter he did feel like a sense of pain because he only felt comfortable sharing emotions when she's around with her and i think that like it did get him a little bit back into more perspective However, at the same time, he still recognizes what he has to do. And I think he kind of showed that when he was like, I'm telling you this as Usul because he realizes that he has different roles to play as Paul, you know, like mm-hmm. he's not just Paul or Usul or, you know, or the Atreides or all this other stuff. He's multiple roles, uh-huh. but at least to Chani, he's telling her that as Usul, he'll wait for her. He'll be there for her. But, you know, mm-hmm. like he's got other stuff to do as Paul Atreides, Muad'Dib, etc. Yeah, so cetera, it's just a little bit weird. The Kwisatz Haderach. Uh-huh. You know, he's it's just got a lot of titles. Yeah, so I mean, this this is just one tie to to something that isn't so formal. Mm-hmm. And this yeah, is like the I can't tell like, he, like formally accepted his title of Kwisatz Haderach, right? Yeah, because uh-huh. Jessica like, was like, "Oh, yeah. you said you weren't the Kwisatz Haderach," but he's like, "But now well, you I do. am now. Yeah. <laughs> now I am, and what are you going like, to do about it? <laughs> you have a problem? Talk to the hand." Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, it's been so long since I've heard something like that. <laughs> yeah, that's actually funny. I'm going to need to use that again. It's so petty, it's it's good. They're, they're just uh, taken speechless by the, the sheer, you know, dumbness of it. Audacity. <laughs> yeah, the sheer audacity. I'm like a lion, the witch, and the audacity of this. Snitch. Yeah. This type of stuff is exactly what Paul kind of needs, though, right? Like, because right now Paul's worried about losing both Stilgar and Gurney to their reverence of him. So it seems like, honestly, he kind of needs someone to like slap him back in place. That's what Jessica's here for. You know, like Jessica, she's been like the only one he could trust now because, in a certain way, she's the only one that'll tell him the real facts. Even though I don't really like reading the dialogue between Jessica and Paul in the recent chapters because it's all really just been arguments with each other. Jessica's been like the only person who dares to be so blunt and critical of Paul and so publicly too, you know, like right now in front of everyone, she's like, stop, you know, like she's like she's critiquing him on every single thing. And in that regard, maybe she is the only person who could be the best advisor to Paul as of right now and in the future, only mm-hmm. because she could hold him accountable. Yeah, I mean, even though she used to be one of the main factors in its push towards the jihad, I mean, now she's one of the main factors pushing against it. So, I mean, I I respect Jessica so much for how much she's changed and done for Paul. And now at the most critical moment, she acts as one of the only anchors keeping Paul in check. So, yeah, I think Herbert has done such a phenomenal job writing female characters in this book. I mean, instead of just writing 
classic the the classic damsel in distress uh he actually wrote one of the best i think female written characters in any book that i've ever read so yeah that's just one of my favorite things about this book like the cast is actually diversified and each character plays a valuable role Mm -hmm. definitely yeah the the story couldn't progress without a lot of these characters Mm -hmm. yeah cool um well on that note i believe that concludes the discussion for this episode of the do not enter podcast make sure to read the part in chapter 48 ending at paul said step back out of my way so what a (laughs) command right and tune in next time when we discuss it as always thanks to all of you listeners for being patient with us and being interested in our thoughts follow us on instagram at do not enter reddit use such do not enter twitter at do not enter and email us at do not enter at gmail.com that's d-u-n-e-n-o-t-e-n-t-e-r at gmail.com please contact us with question feedback or i dare say Mm, it's it's tough it's a tough one toughy to pronounce you know um shoot nolan do you have an idea of how to say it um uh snog snorek snorok snorlax snorlax Snorlax? yo okay yeah yeah yeah, sleepy snorlax um yeah so perfect yeah perfect perfect pronunciation love it 10 out of 10 all right give us a review on itunes or spotify it only takes a few seconds of your time so uh of course you have to go and make an account and then uh you can navigate to our show and then click the five star button because that's the only one that exists and if you're on apple you can leave a nice review and if you're on spotify you can follow and uh the reasons for this are twofold one it lets others know about our podcast um it helps get it up the chart so that we can get it out to a wider variety of viewers uh listeners i suppose and also on a personal note it lets us know that we're doing a good job and motivates us to keep creating content for you guys so uh do those things and it would be very much appreciated otherwise uh have a great week and we will see you all back very soon see you guys bye guys